following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So we're in this series in Isaiah. Now, we last, last week we were Isaiah chapter 2, so we are jumping ahead here to chapter 5 this morning. Uh, I'm not going to preach every single chapter in Isaiah. That would just make the series way too long. So I'm trusting that hopefully you are reading through Isaiah. And if you are in the journey that we're on reading through the book of Isaiah, then the chapters to read this coming week are chapters 13 through 17, okay? If you're tracking along with us or if you're just joining in, just jump straight to there. And that way you're, you're going through with the, with the group. 13 to 17 this week. And uh, keep reading and, uh, and keep studying. But um, we'd better read this passage while the uh, grapes are still going around. So Jill is going to come and read this passage for us. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will bring down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So the the image in this passage, the dominant image here is the image of a vineyard. And uh, we've got some familiarity with this, right? Because in New Zealand, we've got a whole lot of vineyards. So we've got, you know, we've got something to go on there. We kind of think we know how vineyards work and what vineyards are. We've just got to remember that when Isaiah is talking about a vineyard and these grapevines, it's a bit different to the vineyards that we see around the country today. These are ancient vineyards and they're in a part of the world very unlike New Zealand. And this is several millennia ago. And so we've got to get back into the world that Isaiah is describing and try and get our heads around these ancient vineyards and what these were like and the process of growing grapes and, and, and viticulture and so on was, was quite different back in Isaiah's day. So we've got to enter back in that world, try and imagine what it is he's describing to us here. So let's wander through this passage and see what we see. So verse 1, Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his Vineyard. Now, the, the one I love, or some of your translations say uh, that my beloved, this is God. Okay, so we've got to understand who the main players are here. The vineyard owner is God. God is the one who has this vineyard. God's the one who's going to plant this vineyard. And the vineyard in this passage is Israel. Okay, simple enough. So this is the nation of Israel, or more specifically, the people of Judah. 
the southern part of Israel that Isaiah is prophesying to. So God is the vineyard owner. Israel is his vineyard. And this is quite a common metaphor that that crops up through the Old Testament, describing the people of God as a vineyard. It's such a rich metaphor to think about the community of Israel, to think about the people of God as a vineyard that he has planted. So it's uh, there quite a bit. This is one of the key passages where we see Israel described as, as a vineyard. And so, here's how it goes. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. And so, we are used to seeing vineyards on the sides of hills, right? Because apparently that's better for the the air flow through the grapevine and the water irrigation and so on. But you've got to remember back in Judah, in this Judean kind of wilderness, the kinds of hills that vineyards are built on, they're pretty rugged sort of hills. They're not these gentle rolling slopes. These could be quite treacherous sort of hills. These could be quite steep banks, but they were still the most fertile places to build vineyards. And they were still the best angle for the sun and the rain and the aspect and everything else to to plant this vineyard. And so God is saying, I'm going to put my vineyard in the best possible place, even though it's going to require a bit more work for me, because I'm going to be up and down the hill It's harder than it would be if it was just a a flat stretch of land. But I'm going to pick the the best spot. I'm going to take this hillside here, this fertile hillside. This is going to be where I'm going to plant my vineyard because I want this to be the best vineyard in the world. I want this to be a vineyard that I'm going to be proud of, that all the nations are going to come to and be amazed by this vineyard that I'm going to grow. My people, Israel. This is what God's saying. So here's what he does. Verse 2. He dug it up and cleared it of stones. Now, the word dug there, it doesn't refer to plowing the ground with a massive big plow that you have animals driving. I mean, that's often how you would break up hard ground. You get a couple of big animals working for you, dragging the plow. But you can't do that on this hillside. You can't get a big plow and animals up there. So this word that Isaiah uses, to dig, it's it's to dig by hand. It may be with a spade or a shovel or a hoe or something, but it's just to dig by hand. And so you imagine the vineyard owner here, he's out, she's out in the baking sun in these Mediterranean temperatures, you know, 40 degrees plus, in the middle of the day, no shade, out in the open, just breaking up the ground, just breaking up that hard, tough Ground working his way up and down this hillside because that's the kind of backbreaking work that's required. God says, This is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm happy to do for my people, Israel, to plant them in the land, to give them the best possible chance. I'm going to dig this ground myself and I'm going to make the best possible hillside for this vineyard. So he dug up the ground and then he clears it of stones. That's the next step. Now, you see, if we go back to the picture, you see these stones there. Some of these hillsides in the Judean wilderness, they're covered in stones. They're covered in rocks. You can go there today and see this. It's kind of a desert sort of environment. And so if you're going to plant a vineyard there, one of the big jobs you've got is clearing away all the stones. And some of these stones are big. I mean, it's not just little pebbles. They're big rocks there. So you've got to do something with them. So what you would do with them is you'd make walls like here. And, and you'd dig out these kind of areas where you'd build basically a retaining wall out of the stones. You build these walls along the hillside and what you're doing is creating some terraces going up the hillside and on the flat ledges, that's where you'd plant your vines. 
So you're using these rocks, and look at the walls there. I mean, you can just see every, every stone has just got its place there. Every stone's in the right place. The big ones, the little ones. I mean, someone has taken some time and made those walls, and you've got to make them secure. You've got to make them sturdy, because if you've got all these walls going up the hillside for your vineyard, if one of those walls gives way, what's going to happen? The whole thing's compromised. You know, if you get a big storm and one wall comes down, then potentially your whole vineyard is at risk. So you've really got to work on those walls and make sure they are secure. So this vineyard owner, who in this story is God, he's done this work of clearing all these stones, getting all these rocks, making all these solid retaining walls. And then he's ready to plant. He's finally ready to plant his vineyard. And so we read verse two, and planted it, with the choicest vines. Now notice he doesn't, even, he doesn't even plant seeds. He plants vines, right? So he's planting stock vines in the ground. And the kind of vines that he plants are the choicest, the highest quality. The Hebrew word there is sorek. And it refers to these particular kinds of grapes. I understand these, these big, purple, juicy, delicious, high-quality grapes, sorek. It's those kind of dusty colored purple grapes, you know, just delicious grapes. So God is saying, I am going to plant the highest quality vines in this vineyard. I'm, I'm just, I'm sparing no expense. I am not compromising on quality. I'm going to get the choicest vines. I'm going to get the sorek. I'm going to get the best because I want the best out of this vineyard. I want the best possible grapes and the best, highest quality wine imaginable. So I'm planting the choicest vines. I'm going with the Sorek variety. This is what God is saying. You can kind of see the type of vineyard that's taking shape here, right? This is pretty impressive stuff. So God plants the vines. And then what's next? Middle of verse 2. He built a watchtower in it. Now, I think we've got a picture of a watchtower. It's kind of a, this is another thing you do with all the stones that you collect. You'd make one of these structures. And they kind of, these, they look like a little mini castle or a dome, and you'd maybe put a, put a tent over the top. So it serves a few purposes. One, it gives you a bit of shade from the relentless sun. Two, it's a place to store your tools. And three, it is literally a watch tower. So that's where you keep watch, because once the vines start producing grapes, you're going to get all these animals coming in. You're going to get some predators coming in, some foxes or wolves or whatever, and some birds coming in trying to get the grapes. And so the, the, the vineyard owner has got to spend some serious time in the watchtower looking out over the vineyard, making sure that it's safe. And if there are any predatory animals that come along, it's his job or her job to scare them off. So this is sometimes a bit of a treacherous job. You're the one responsible for getting rid of these animals. But God says, I'm willing to do it. I'm going to sit in the watchtower and make sure, Israel, that you are protected. I'm going to keep the animals away. I'm going to keep the predators away. I will protect you. You're safe because I am watching over my people. And this is a long process, right? I mean, some of you know more about this than me, but my understanding is that from the time you plant the vine to the time you get the first bunch of grapes can be about three years. So this is a long period of time. God's saying, I'm not just in this as just a quick little project. I'm here for the long haul. And, and Israel, I'm going to journey with you, and I'm going to nurture you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch over you. I'll be patient with you. 
as long as it takes. I'll be patient because I desire a harvest of grapes, good, serec grapes. And you see, God even goes to the length, this last little bit of the description, he cuts out a wine press as well. It's in the middle of verse 2. That's like a stone basin that you cut out, and when you've got the grapes there, you put them in that, you trample them with your feet. It's the first step in turning them into wine. You trample the grapes, thrash them around. You're only going to do that if you're expecting a good harvest. Right? You're only going to build a wine press if you're really expecting a good harvest. And God's saying, I am anticipating a bumper crop. I'm anticipating a great harvest out of this vineyard. This is going to be great. We're going to need our own wine press just to trample these grapes. So God is doing everything possible to give this vineyard the best possible chance of success, producing the best crop and the best grapes. And then, at the end of verse 2, the whole story turns. And the whole mood of the passage changes. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So you imagine the vineyard owner coming out one day. Finally, he's waited years for this. You know, finally, the day comes. There should be a great harvest there. He comes out to inspect the branches, inspect the vines. And instead of finding good, delicious, juicy, edible grapes like these, he finds bad fruit. And the Hebrew word there for bad fruit is the word be'ushim. And it literally refers to like a fungus that the grapes can grow. This disease or this condition that the grapes can have where they just, something attacks them and they just, their growth is stunted and they shrivel up, they stop growing and they die. And not only do they die, they stink. Literally be'ushim, it literally can be translated stinking fruit. That's the closest literal translation you get, stink fruit. And so this is fruit that is rotted. Some of you have smelled fruit like this, right? It's so rotten, it just emits this terrible odor. And you just don't, you, you can't be anywhere near it. It's just putrid. The, the stuff reeks. And God's saying, that's the kind of grapes that I found. These stinking, rotting, shriveled up, dead bunches of grapes. And you can just hear the exasperation in God's voice. He's saying, after all this, after everything I've done, I built the walls, I cleared the stones, I built the watchtower, I dug out the wine press, I've waited years, and I get Be'ushim. After all that, how can this be? What more could I possibly have done for my vineyard? And this is what I get, Israel. I get Be'ushim, I get stinking, rotten fruit. And we read why God found this kind of rotten fruit within Israel later in the passage. In verse 7, we get the story. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now, what Isaiah is doing here is a couple of very clever little word plays. There's two word pairs in here. You don't hear it in English, but it's there in the Hebrew. Isaiah says, he looked for justice. Now, the word justice in Hebrew is the word mishpat. Everyone say mishpat. Mishpat. 
mishpat. And it means it's not quite like our Western word a sense of justice. This idea of biblical justice, is, it's the idea of those who have power, those who have some resources and those who have a certain sense of privilege, using that on behalf of those who don't have power who don't have resources and who don't have privilege, lifting up others so that there is equality and there is fairness. So it's looking to those who are disadvantaged and lifting them up so they can share in what we have. That's what justice is. God is a God of justice, and he asks us to be people of justice. Isaiah says God looked for mishpat, he looked for justice, but what he saw was mishpat. It's a very similar sounding word. But it basically means the opposite. It means to spill blood, to shed blood, to shed an innocent life. It means corruption and violence and bloodshed. And God says, I come looking for you to have justice towards the poor and the disadvantaged and the neglected. And what I find is violence and bloodshed and innocent lives being taken. How can this be, Israel? And then he says in the next phrase, I looked for righteousness. The word righteousness is the word sedaka. Everyone say sedaka. Sedaka. And it's the idea in this context of living rightly towards others. Right living, right conduct towards others. And with a similar kind of shade of meaning to justice, it is showing compassion. It is showing kindness. It's showing mercy. It's showing dignity to others, lifting others up and treating each other with love and mercy and compassion. Sedaka. And Isaiah says, God came looking for sedaka, but what he heard was Se'aka, which, and that word means a cry. It's like a cry of help. It's like a child who's in pain. It's someone who's injured, who's hurt, crying out, someone crying in distress, crying because they're beaten, because they're being mistreated, because they're being oppressed. It's the cry of the oppressed. And God says, I came looking for you to treat one another rightly and to treat others around you rightly. And what I'm hearing are the cries of the oppressed. And not only are these, these oppressed people crying out, but you are blocking your ears. You're not even listening. In fact, some of the cries of the oppressed are because of your doing. It's your own making because you are the oppressors. This is a pretty hard word for Israel to hear, isn't it? God says, I come looking for mishpat. And I find mishpat. I come looking for sedaka, and I find se'aka instead. He says, how could you be like this, Israel? And you of all nations, Israel. I mean, Israel, you were the ones who were oppressed. You think back to Egypt. You were the ones. You were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. You were the oppressed ones. You cried out to me. And I heard your se'aka, I heard when you cried and your cries reached the ear of the Lord Almighty and I acted, I didn't block my ears from your cry. And now you have these people around you crying out in their oppression and you are blocking your ears. Instead of good grapes, it's be'ushim. It's stinking, rotten fruit. Now that's a hard word for Israel to hear. But guess what? It's a hard word for us too. And you can already hear the connections and the parallels, can't you, to our lives today. Because when you carry this image of the vineyard all the way through Scripture, you get to the New Testament and you find that we are the vineyard. I mean, didn't Jesus say, 
I am the vine, and you are the branches. If anyone remains in me, he said, they will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So we are the vineyard of God. And this is an immense privilege for us. The same vineyard that God describes in the Old Testament, his people Israel, we are now, those of us who belong to Jesus, we are now grafted into that. We are the vines that are now grafted or the branches that are grafted into this vineyard. It's an incredible privilege that we have. We become part of God's people. We become part of his family through Jesus. We're part of the vineyard. And God says, I'm gonna nurture you and I'm gonna cultivate you and and this community and I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna care for you and I'm gonna protect you and I'm gonna be patient with you. But he says, the reason that I'm patient with you and that I'm nurturing you and I'm tending to you is because I want you to produce good fruit. I want you to produce a harvest. I want you in your lives and in this community, I want to see mishpat. I want to see tzedakah. I want to see justice. I want to see righteousness. And you can imagine God kind of coming and and inspecting the vines one day. You can imagine him kind of walking between the rows on a Sunday morning and just taking a look at our lives, taking a look at our church and saying, I'm looking, I'm looking for mishpat. I'm looking for tzedakah. What am I finding? And too often, too often when he comes looking for good grapes, what he finds is be'ushim. What he finds is people that are just too tangled up in their own lives to really give much of a rip about anyone else. People whose concern really doesn't go beyond themselves and their immediate family to look out for and care for anyone beyond themselves. People that are just, even Christians, that are just too busy propping up their own lifestyles and ensuring their own comfort and security to really have an eye on those outside of their circle, whether in the church or out in our broader neighborhoods and communities. And so our spiritual growth becomes stunted. We might have a wonderful personal, private relationship with God, but God's saying, I want to see justice towards those who are neglected by others, towards those who are forgotten by others, towards those who are disadvantaged. God's saying to us this morning, there's there's se'aka all around you. There's the cry of the oppressed all around you. But so often we don't hear it. There's the cry of the single mum. There's the cry of the single dad. There's the cry of the refugee. There's the cry of the immigrant. There's the cry of the elderly. There's the cry of the mentally unwell. There is the cry of the at-risk teenager. There is the cry of the disabled. The cry of the oppressed is all around us. The question is, are we willing to listen? Are we willing to hear? Are we willing to respond? And the good news is we can. I mean, the good news is we don't have to follow this story. We don't have to have the way Israel went be the way that we go, and it's just this inevitable decline and slide downwards. We can say, no, we we are going to be a different kind of community. I'm grafted into this vine. I'm abiding in Jesus. That's the key. I'm in Him. I don't deserve to be part of this vineyard, but I am, and I want to do all I can to produce good fruit. I don't want to produce mishpah. I don't want to produce se'aka and let the cries of the oppressed go unanswered. I want to do what I can when I hear those cries and when I hear of those that are disadvantaged, lonely, neglected, forgotten, who are the least in the eyes of others. I want to move towards them with love. 
I don't want to move away. I don't want to block my ears from that. I want to move towards them with love and with kindness and with compassion to show dignity and to celebrate their humanity and to do all I can to see Christ in them and be Christ to them. This is the community of justice, the community of righteousness that God is calling us to be. And it's happening. It's already happening. Last year, Jill, who read this passage this morning, uh, posted on the Woman at Shore Facebook page about a refugee, an asylum seeker, a woman named Jamila, who was relatively new to the country, and uh, she'd, she's Afghanistani, so she had just arrived, she had some needs, and Jill posted, is anyone that can help uh, with Jamila? And so another woman from our church community, Manuela, and I would have gotten Manuela to share this story this morning, except she's teaching out in bounce, but she gave me permission to share it. Manuela saw this uh, post of Jill's online, and she just felt the Holy Spirit prompt her to respond. She just felt like she needed to do something. And this was way outside of her comfort zone. It's not something that she'd done before. But she felt she wanted to go and meet Jamila. So she did. She took her kids, her two children, and she went and met Jamila. And Jamila was living in a one-bedroom place with her four kids. And she was terrified because she thought her husband from Afghanistan was going to come back and take the children. So she lived in real fear. She was terrified of going outside, didn't even want to go outside, and had very little money. And so Manuela just started this journey with Jamila, and just little things, just started finding the little ways. It was a trip to the embassy. It was helping her get her fingerprinting done for the police vetting. It was taking her kids to the pools sometimes. It was uh, dipping into the uh, relief fund that we have as a church to get some money to help set her up with sunscreen and fans for summer so that her family could, uh, could stay cool in their, in their house. It was having them around for a meal. And then, of course, Jamila wants to reciprocate that. And even though she's got hardly any money, she wants to have them around. She wants to have the Stadlers around to their place to, to um, show them hospitality. And so it was also the humility of receiving that as well and allowing Jamila to be generous out of the very little that she had. And Manuela says, you know, this woman, she's a Muslim, and her faith as a Muslim is so tied up in her culture, it's so enmeshed, but Manuela's had these little opportunities to talk about Jesus along the way and share who Jesus is to her. Because, of course, within Islam, there's respect for Jesus as a prophet, but not as the Savior, not as the Son of God. And so Manuela's saying, well, you know, this is who Jesus truly is. This is who he is to me and finding those opportunities. And she's saying that she's, Manuela's praying that the day would come, that the miracle would be done in Jamila's heart and the hearts of her children, that she would choose to accept Jesus that she would choose to give her life to Jesus. And that is the ultimate aim that Manuela has, but she's not just focused on that. She's focused on the broader needs that Jamila and her family has, and they're journeying with her in a simple way. That's just one woman's journey, one family's journey in our church. And what Manuela and her family are doing towards Jamila, that is mishpat. That is exactly what Isaiah was talking about. when he, you know, God says, I look for justice. So it's not justice in the sense of punishing wrongdoers. It is justice in the sense of lifting others up. Just looking for those who are hurting, who are in need, and who are overlooked by everyone else and saying, what can I do to lift them up and love them in Jesus' name? Show something of the love of Christ. That is justice. That is righteousness. That is listening to the cry of the oppressed. And instead of blocking it out, it's responding. 
and it'll look different for you. It's not all getting involved with refugees. You can do that, of course. You could talk to Jill, and there's refugee services, and you could be involved there. It may be getting involved with Nasi Twan. You've heard from Andrew this morning. Maybe getting involved with community aid and development there. It may be volunteering in a retirement home. We've got people that go into Rosedale Retirement Village and just spend time with the elderly there, having a cup of tea, listen to some stories. It may be uh, getting the homeless ministry started again. It's had a couple of iterations and different people. It doesn't have a leader right now. Maybe that's a prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life to serve the homeless. And there's always going to be a million reasons not to do it. I know that. You can all sit here and, and in your head sort of make the, the excuses of why that's not you and it's their own fault and it's the result of poor decision-making and so on and so forth, and all these reasons why we shouldn't. But God say, says, are you listening to the cry of the oppressed around you? That is what Jesus did. And when he, half the time we don't even hear it because we're so tuned out. But God says, first of all, start listening. First of all, just start listening. Who is it around you? Who is it around you? Who is lost? Who is last? Who is least? Who's around you at school that's maybe being neglected by everyone else, is lonely by themselves? Can you move towards that person? Show them the love of Jesus? Who is it? Who is it for you at uni or at work, on your street, in your neighborhood? Doesn't necessarily need to be through a great organized ministry. Doesn't need to be through an official program. Doesn't need to have a church brand attached to it. It can just be you being prompted by the Holy Spirit to go and be Jesus to someone else. Simple things, small things done with great love. That's the harvest. That's good grapes. And never, ever forget that Jesus says, you can only do this as you abide in me. right? So this is not, please don't hear me saying, this is like running off after some form of self-righteousness or just trying to atone for our own guilt by doing good deeds toward others. It's not that. Jesus says, you, can't, you try and do this by yourself, you're wasting your time. Apart from me, you can do nothing, is what he said. But if we abide deeply in Jesus... If this comes out of a growing relationship that we have with him and we are soaking in his grace and we recognize that, that in a sense we were the ones who were oppressed by sin and Jesus has freed me and so now he calls me to show a little bit of that freedom and love and life to someone else, that's where it comes from. And that's the motivation then that we do this in the Spirit's power and in Jesus' name and out of our anchoring in Him. We abide in the vine. But it's not just going to happen. It's not just going to happen by doing nothing. It takes your willingness. It takes your obedience. It takes a willingness to be inconvenienced sometimes. It takes a willingness to have your schedule interrupted sometimes. It takes some sacrifice. It takes you stepping out of your comfort zone sometimes into who knows what, but you do it because you know the Spirit is prompting. You know this is what Jesus would do, and this is what justice and righteousness look like. So I just pray that you can keep this image of the vineyard with you, that it's not just a, a, a one-time thing for you, but this is an image you could carry in your heart, that whenever you taste grapes maybe, or whenever you drink a glass of wine, that you just, your mind would be drawn back to Isaiah 5. And in the first instance, that you would be incredibly grateful that you have been brought into this vineyard. 
That's the first step is to say, God, I don't deserve to be here, but out of your sheer mercy and pleasure, I'm part of this vineyard now. And that's an, that's an incredible thing because you've taken such care of your vineyard. You love your vineyard so immeasurably. And I thank you for that, God. But out of that, to take seriously this calling, this challenge that God is looking for good grapes. He's looking for good fruit in our lives. And he doesn't want to find Be'ushim. So let's open our ears to the cry of the oppressed around us, wherever that may be heard. And when we hear it, let's not block our ears, but let's listen, let's hear, let's respond, and let's go and share the love of Jesus and show the love of Jesus with those around us. That is how we produce good fruit for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we hear your word spoken to us, and it's as challenging for us today, God, as it was for the people of Isaiah's day. Because, Lord, I look in my life, we look in our lives, and I know so often, God, it's not good fruit. It's not the harvest that you desire. And we come back and thank you, God, that no matter how it's going in our lives and how we're doing, we are saved by your grace alone. We know this, Lord God. But, Father, we hear the challenge this morning. We hear the challenge of your word calling us to produce the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of justice in our community, to listen to the cry of the oppressed. And so I want to pray now, Lord, that you would connect the dots in our minds and in our hearts, and even now just, just bring to our minds and settle on our hearts the names and the faces of the people in our world, in our lives, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, the people that you would have us move towards with love. And with kindness. Father, show us the first step when all we have is, is a general desire and a general hunger. Would you show us the next practical step? Show us what we can do as we leave this room this morning to turn faith into action and to begin producing that harvest of righteousness in our lives. Lord Jesus, send us forth by your Spirit. And in your strength. And we just pray, Lord, that through us, through your church, you would flood our community with your presence. You would flood our city with your presence and your love. You would flood our nation and our world with your presence, with your love, with your mercy. As we show the world what your love truly looks like when it's put into action. Produce that harvest of good fruit in our lives and in our church community. We pray, we cry out for it, we look to you. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.